At position number 10 in the Spirit of Soho mural is the painter, printmaker, social commentator and satirist William Hogarth. Born at the very end of the 17th century and raised in the noisy, dirty environs of Smithfields, Hogarth began his career as an apprentice silver engraver and gradually pressed himself into the art world through his paintings and prints, most famous of which today is Gin Lane, a shocking representation of the gin-sodden slums of St Giles, the neighbouring parish to Soho. As Hogarth's popularity as an artist grew, so did a flourishing market in Hogarth knockoffs as publishers produced and sold cheap imitations of his work. Not a man to be messed with, Hogarth gathered together a small group of fellow artists to lobby Parliament, and in 1734, the Engraving Copyright Act was passed, the first law of its kind, to protect the creators of original artworks. Hogarth caused a publishing sensation with two more works that are still well known today, A Harlot's Progress in 1732 and A Rate's Progress in 1735. These were morality tales which tell the stories of their protagonists through a series of prints. One is the tale of a Covent Garden sex worker, and the other is of the irresponsible son of a rich man who spends his life whoring and gambling. In both cases, their life choices don't work out too well for them. It would be unfair, though, to depict Hogarth as a preachy moralist. He was a lover of London and of London life, and being from a modest background, he'd had to work his way up from the streets and forge his own path into an art establishment that perhaps never truly accepted him despite, or maybe because of, being extremely popular with the public. Being slightly outside the mainstream art world, Hogarth came up with a revolutionary way of selling, marketing and, to use a modern phrase, monetizing his work, which was explained to me by my guest, Dr Jacqueline Riding. Jacqueline is an art historian, advisor and author. She worked with the film director Mike Lee as a historical consultant on two films, Mr Turner and Peter Lou, and her biography of the man in question, William Hogarth, will be published in March 2021. I met up with Jacqueline to find out more about Hogarth in the churchyard of St Anne's on Wardour Street, which, as the lockdown was coming to an end, was even noisier than it would have been in Hogarth's day. So he's born in 1697 in West Smithfields, uh, which is where the meat market is, in the sort of shade and the shadow of the St Bartholomew's Hospital. So he's a, he is a, literally a Londoner, Londoner born and bred. You know, he's the great describer of London and its streets and its people. Pinning down Soho to a particular work, you can, in noon of four times of the day, which he produced uh, in the 1736-37, you have the Huguenots going to church in Hog Lane, which would have been Soho. And so this, there is a scene in Soho. And then, of course, you've got, you know, around, around about Soho, you've got places like St Giles, which, of course, is Gin Lane. And so, you know, he, he's, he's in this vicinity. He's definitely pounding the streets. There's no two ways. He originally goes to school because his father is, uh, um, comes down from Westmoreland, in the northwest of England, to be a teacher, first off, a teacher of Latin and Greek. And Hogarth goes to school. But his father's got ambitions to publish, so he tries to publish books on how to teach children Latin because that's his expertise. He sets up a coffee house where you speak Latin, which is often described as being a bit of a daft idea. But actually, bearing in mind Latin and Greek were indications of a gentlemanly education, which of course was a step up the ladder, social ladder. So is Hogarth a gentleman, as it were, or well, he was, not quite...? I think he feels that he could have been. He could have been a gentleman, as it were, but, um, but unfortunately his father fails at various publishing um, projects, like a Latin dictionary and all sorts of things, and ends up in the fleet, 
um, in the Fleet Prison for debtors. And so Hogarth spends part of his childhood in sort of in the vicinity of the Fleet. You know, much like that, the stories of Dickens and you know the Marshalsea. Yeah. It's that kind of. Um, Look, everything I've read about Hogarth, the Dickens parallel seems really obvious, but nobody seems to have mentioned it. Because you do feel with both of them, Hogarth and Dickens, that those early experiences, especially the father being in prison, mm. informed their work for the rest of their lives. I think Hogarth, I mean, he describes you know, the lost years. It's almost like he's got wilderness years. You know, He felt the great loss of a, of a gentleman's education because the sphere he intended to move in, the art, you know, fine art sphere, did require learning. If you wanted to be a great artist, you had to have learning, a gentleman's education. These learning. history paintings. It's with, these blessed you know, history paintings. Yeah, yeah. um, you know, you had to read your classics. You had to understand. You had to know something about you know, Julius Caesar or whatever. You had to have be widely read. And I think that Hogarth probably did, but the whole time he was just conscious of the fact that this was all sort of learned on the hoof rather than as part of a formal education, which other people that he might have been talking to, particularly aristocrats and gentlemen and lawyers and, you know, the sort of professional class, um, you know, he was at a disadvantage. Now, whether he actually was or not is, is one thing, but he felt it. So I think the key to Hogarth is that there's a rumble of sort of, you know, sort of anger rumbling away. What was his big break, as it were? How did he launch onto the art scene? Was there one particular picture that made the art world look at him and say, oh, somebody's arrived now? Or? Yes, well, he's, he's, he sort of stops his apprenticeship, and his apprenticeship is silver engraving. So, in other words, he's engraving on silver, like jugs, cups, you know, that kind of thing. But that's piecework, and he's not very keen on it. He doesn't, he's so low down, as far as he's concerned, in the hierarchy of art. So he sees his next step as being copper engraving, which is seen as a much more elevated reproduction, the, the ability to reproduce images. So he starts sort of effectively training himself in that. And so for the first part of the sort of 1720s through to the late 1720s, he's known as somebody who does book illustrations, business cards, shop cards. And he also starts off doing some of these satirical prints, which are produced for the booksellers. So the booksellers own the plates he gets paid for the plate, and then they go off and print them, and then they make the money from the actual engraving. He's commissioned to do these, he's or? effectively okay. commissioned. He, he produces his own image called Masquerade and Operas off his own bat. So he engraves it, he gets it printed, and then he sells it himself. So this is all independent of the booksellers and um, publishers. The booksellers and publishers think that's a great image. You know, that's very topical, very of the moment. So they get one of their in-house engravers to produce a really bad cheap version of Hogarth's image and then start selling it for a penny rather than a shilling or something. So they undercut him, the quality's bad and it's cheaper. So it hits him on various fronts. It hits him in the pocket and it hits him as an artist, as an elevated, you know, sort of creative professional. And there's nothing you can do about it because there's no such thing as a copyright law doesn't cover this kind of thing. So these booksellers and stuff can just do this with impunity. They can just do it. So eventually he's so, it damages his, the selling of his own engravings to such an extent, he actually has his engravings sent back to him by the various people who are selling them around London. They're sent back because they can't sell them because there's a cheaper version. Right. And so he gets, he so needs money, he then sells the plates. So he has to sell them to the very people who've undercut him and pirated his own image. So being, bearing in mind, he's a sort of angry chap. He's got this sort of rumbling away. This makes him very angry. 
But in the meantime, he's got to go back to the publishers and still earn money through engravings by doing this work for them. And then there's, in 1728, this amazing theatrical extravaganza occurs called The Beggar's Opera. And Hogarth's sitting in the audience. And as he's watching this, he sort of draws it. And then he starts painting versions of it. And this is one of the first dateable painted images by Hogarth. He's done other paintings before. He's, he's venturing into painting. But this is the first, you know, sort of, of, the, of the great paintings, you know, the famous paintings. Then he decides he's going to start doing something on, you know, he starts sort of messing around with the idea of a kind of prostitute who lives in Drury Lane. And he starts doing a little design of this prostitute sitting in her bedroom with her her servant who's serving her tea and she's sort of looking out at the at you and all sort of he thinks oh it's quite interesting and people who turn up to his uh, his house say oh that's interesting but how did she get there you know what did, how did this how did this woman become a prostitute so he starts little, adding little scenes in and then eventually he's got six images of this progress of a harlot and so having been slightly encouraged that this might be an interesting subject for engravings he then goes back to the idea of engraving these images and producing them himself as an independent um, publisher. And he hasn't done this before at all, so the Harlot Progress is a, is a Harlot's Progress, is kind of seminal set um, a moment in his life. Um, it's not only because he's sort of created this idea of a progress through a sequence of images, but also he paints them first, uses the painted images as advertising for the engravings. So when he's setting up his subscribers which are the people who pay up front for a set of the engravings, they can come and see those paintings at his house. They go, OK, I get it. They're going to be... This is going to be great. This I'm going to get... I'm going to sign a, up a, a to set the of print set. Of these. OK. Yeah. So this whole thing is a new... To do a series of pictures telling a story, that's, that's an innovation, is it? Um, yeah. OK. So the paintings are important in the sense that they show he's a painter... But their importance is in the selling of the engravings because that's where the money comes from. The money comes from selling to subscribers or indeed anyone who just drops into his house and buys a set. You know, that, that's where he makes his money is in the engraving, not the painting. Is it kind of brown paper bag under the counter kind of stuff because of the subject matter? Or no, is it no. there's nothing kind of salacious or... Well, it's a little bit salacious. <laughs> but, but not in a kind of in a, in a hidden way. No, like. no, no, no. This, this, this isn't any sense... Porn. This is this is about. He calls them modern moral subjects. So they are about everyday life, but they have a kind of almost like a parable quality to them because he always intends. He says he intends that his images, these images in particular, are supposed to tell a story, but they're also to to show a moral a moral path, a moral way. If anybody has seen a Hogarth picture, it'll be Gin Lane, won't it? It will. Could you describe that and then tell me what it's about? Because it's quite disturbing. Yes, when you're looking at a Hogarth print, particularly one like Gin Lane, you've got to remember to an extent it is propaganda. It's not reportage as such. So the key to it is that it was part of a programme of um, anti-gin drinking and uh, gin creation in the area of St Giles, where they reckon every third house was producing the equivalent of methylated spirits and calling it gin everything that was thrown in and distilled and then sold under the banner of gin. And so the main when you say gin, it wasn't the lovely gin that we have today, then? <laughs> no. OK, right. Um, it, no, not at all. Um, and the main victims of it were, were the, the lower classes, the poor, because there, no, there was no laws against producing these things. So there was a big drive to outlaw this, this, sort of, this form of so-called gin production in order to prevent the inevitable crime, death, degrading 
of, of so many people, which the print shows in its most extreme form. You know, you've got a woman in the front, the most famous figure is, of course, the woman at the front who's a sort of wet nurse or she's a mother, but she's anyway, she's supposed to be suckling a child. And the child is just falling off her lap because she's literally almost dead drunk. Into an uh, abyss. It's into like, the yeah. stairwell. She's yeah. sort of tumbling. So the child isn't dead, it's en route to severe injury or death. So you're seeing it in action. So that's another thing about Hogarth. There's lots of sort of action and noise, associated noise and, and so on in his prints. And Gin Lane does it brilliantly. You know, he might well have seen something like that on the streets and he would almost certainly have seen something or someone like that very figure. He might have actually have seen, witnessed that character, as he called them, not caricatures, but characters, mm. and made a mental note or even a physical note with his pencil and his sketchbook of this, this figure... And then he integrates it into something that's so extreme, it's a sort of an accumulation of, sort of the worst sights that you could see on a London street have all been brought together into this print to make the point, to make the point very graphically and dramatically. Where would people um, have seen it? Would they have seen, coffee would they, houses. Okay, uh, on, people, on walls or just... Uh, yeah, pinned up on out. the wall, okay. handed out, or, you know, people bought them because they were images by Hogarth. And the people who are buying these images are partly the ones who are connoisseurs who collect everything that Hogarth does, so it's part of their sort of collection of Hogarth engravings. But also they were produced relatively cheaply so that um, you might get, uh, you know, people who own weaving houses might pin them up on the walls to sort of waggle a finger at their apprentices who might be inclined to get drunk on execution days at Tyburn and stuff like that. So there's ways of getting these images out. They are hugely popular and they are made popular partly through Hogarth being so famous but also through the fact that they're 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 everywhere. Mm-hmm.